But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome to the final part, the conclusion of the Bonnie and Clyde story. Last we left off, the Barrow gang had just escaped Highway Patrol Captain William Baxter and Sheriff Holt Coffey and their posse as they gunned for them, leaving Buck with the front of his skull forcibly removed by a bullet and glass shards in Blanche's eyes. The gang were resting in Dexfield, awaiting Buck's last breath. Imagine then everyone's surprise the following morning when Buck was still alive. Somehow. In fact, he was lucid enough to talk, telling Blanche to eat and get some rest. With the quick getaway, the gang needed food and fresh supplies. They patched the car up with mud to hide the bullet holes and headed into Dexter. They got some clothes, ice, food, bandages, burn cream, and some more hydrogen peroxide. Clyde would take another trip into town the next day after Buck talked about how much he wanted some fried chicken. He had to get Buck to West Dallas, having made a promise that if either of them got badly injured, the other would take him home to die surrounded by family. Blanche could say there too. Her eyes were bad. They'd tried to tweeze the splinters out and failed miserably. Their current car would never make the trip. Sunday 23rd, Clyde stole another V8 sedan with WD in the town over. As they were doing this, Night Marshal John Love checked out the park. A local farmer had seen a campsite, like someone was sort of squatting there. Love checked it out, and whatever he saw, he ended up calling Sheriff Clint Knee and told him that he should bring the heavy artillery. He sent out a wire to the state's Bureau of Investigation. Bonnie and Clyde drove into Dexter for some final preparations before heading back to Dexfield Park. The night, Buck slept in the back of the seat of the new car. Bonnie offered to stay up with him so Blanche could get some rest. The lawmen attacked the camp at dawn, a mob of 50, mostly locals, with some guns to spare. They barricaded the roads with their cars and advanced on the camp at 5am, July 24th. Clyde heard a noise and screamed out a warning. The posse began shooting. Clyde and WD returned fire, but were quickly put down. WD had superficial wounds to his face, and Clyde had been hit in the left arm, and a shotgun pellet had cut across his cheekbone. They jumped into the car with the others. He tried to drive the car through the posse, but they got lodged on a tree stump. Clyde and WD began shooting again, trying to haul the others out of the car. Taking only handguns, Clyde led the group to the South Raccoon River. Halfway down... Buck fainted. Clyde had to leave his brother behind if he had any chance of getting away with Bonnie. So Bonnie, Clyde, and WD ran up the other bank of the river, leaving Blanche and Buck for the posse. Buck had a moment of consciousness and told Blanche to run. Part of the posse split off to chase them as Blanche hauled Buck behind a log. Bullets ripped through the log. Buck had his pistol and he fired back. This only angered the posse who laid into him, hitting him several times in the body. Blanche helped him up and they called out a surrender. They were immediately taken to Dexter for treatment. And Buck was still with them this entire time. He was even able to tell doctors about the hydrogen peroxide. And they were surprised. They considered it fairly effective since Buck was very much still alive. More pressing though than the gigantic hole in his head, were the gunshot wounds. A 45 slug had hit him in the back, chipped a rib, and lodged itself into his chest. He was moved to a larger hospital in nearby Perry. 
Miraculously, Blanche had managed to avoid all the bullets. Her only injury was the glass that was still in her eyes. When Buck was on the stretcher, he asked for a cigarette. Blanche lit it for him before she was taken into another room for her eyes to be examined. This would be the last time she saw Buck. Over at the hospital in Perry, Sheriff Schmid had hauled ass over there to talk to Buck. Buck confessed to a string of murders and robberies, though he wouldn't give out the identity of the third Barrow gang boy. The Barrows, that is, the ones that weren't in trouble, had also arrived as soon as they heard. As they arrived on Wednesday, 26th of July, pneumonia took hold of Buck. Thursday, he fell into a coma. He died on Saturday. There was a funeral, but Blanche didn't attend. By that time, she was in jail awaiting trial. The doctor was able to extract the glass from her eyes, but she was left with limited vision in one and virtually none in the other. She was interrogated, giving the name Jack Sherman as the fifth member of the Barrow Gang. J. Edgar Hoover even had a crack at her, and she claimed decades later that Hoover threatened to gouge her good eye out if she didn't talk. Blanche would plead guilty to the charge of assault with intent to kill, and would serve ten years in prison. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. headed west into Iowa. Everyone had injuries and they were all wrapped in sheets. Their clothes were all left at the campsite and the sheets were all that they had in the last car that they had stolen. Apparently dressed like the lamest ghosts ever, they held up some servos and got enough money for some clothes. On August 20th, Clyde and WD broke into an armory and stole three Browning automatic rifles, some handguns, and a ton of ammunition. Whether Clyde's intention, WD told him something that he had told Buck back in the park. He wanted to go home. September 7th, they were back in West Dallas, dropping WD off and visiting their family. It was... Of course, a depressing meeting. Buck was buried, and in an effort to save money, they didn't get him a headstone. You see, they actually planned on buying one when Clyde died and was buried there with him. Clyde himself seemed to enjoy the idea. After the 7th, Bonnie and Clyde stuck close to Dallas, hopping between a bunch of relatively safe spots. Between his family and hers, there was always someone who could keep an eye on Bonnie. That left Clyde free to get a new crew together. Unlike last time he looked for recruits, his reputation now was no one. Although Buck was dead and Blanche was in prison, Bonnie and Clyde had pervaded the law yet again, shooting at Lawman and saving Bonnie. He picked up Henry Missingale and Doc Potter. Leaving Bonnie behind, they went north into Oklahoma. They arrived just as a prison breakout had happened, and police were out searching for three young men. Clyde had to steal four cars on the same day just to get some of the heat off of them. Missing Gale got a whack on the head from an old lady with a croquet mallet when he demanded that she hand over the keys to her car. After all that, they were back in West Dallas, and the two men immediately took off. They were straight back to square one, the Barrow Gang. Mid-October was a bad time for Bonnie. You see, Billie Jean got ill and she actually died along with her son. This triggered Bonnie's heavy drinking again. Emma again pleaded to have her leave Clyde and get a better life. Bonnie was adamant though. Clyde was going to die and she was going to die with him. In November, Clyde was pulling into a park to meet his family when he fell into an ambush. Sheriff Smid called out for Clyde to halt as he got near. Clyde didn't, and the lawman immediately began shooting. Bob Alcorn had himself his own Browning automatic rifle. A bullet fired by him pierced the side of the car and went through both Bonnie and Clyde's legs. Injured, the duo headed north again to Oklahoma. Charles Arthur Floyd, aka Pretty Boy Floyd, had himself a safe house in Oklahoma. Bonnie and Clyde rocked up there, hoping for a little bit of help. His family was there, and although they didn't allow, allow him to stay, Bessie Floyd gave them some food and medical supplies before turning them away. Now, when pretty boy Floyd got home, he was not happy. 
and told the household that he that they were not to help Bonnie and Clyde again. You see, Floyd absolutely hated Bonnie and Clyde, thinking they were nothing more than amateur children running around making it difficult for the rest of them. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Turning back to WD now, he really tried to get his life back in order and leave the life of crime. Picking cotton, selling vegetables, whatever he could to make an honest wage. Ted Hinton and Bob Alcorn picked him up and began questioning him. Someone had given them a tip as to his identity. WD recited what Clyde had told him. He wasn't part of the gang. He had been kidnapped and forced to participate in the robberies, and he did not harm a single person. The poor guy was tried and sentenced to a 15-year sentence on December 19. Cut to a month later, January 13th, Clyde's younger brother, LC, contacted him. Raymond needed a hand busting out. Clyde was the best driver he had ever ridden with. Clyde heard him out and absolutely hated the plan. But the guilt then hit him. Well, he, you see, he was reminded that part of Raymond's sentence was actually for a murder that Clyde had committed, so yikes. Early morning, January 14, James Mullen and Floyd Hamilton, that is Raymond's brother, stashed two 45 automatics in the agreed-upon spot, ready for the 6.30, 7 o'clock start of the day. Monday, prisoner Fred Yoist retrieved the guns and brought them back to Joe Palmer. Palmer faked an asthma attack and stayed at the bunks instead of working. He hid the guns under the covers. Ralph Foltz was meant to be busting out with them, but at the very last minute, he was moved. Hilton Bybee took his spot. Clyde had a bad feeling. Not about the breakout itself, but Mullen. He felt that Mullen would betray them, so he insisted that the man join him and Bonnie on the ride. They rode in a black Ford that could fit six. Clyde, Bonnie, Raymond, Mullen, Palmer, and Bybee. The breakout would happen near a stream. Clyde parked the car nearby. And so, here's how it went down. Raymond switched places in the group to work as close to the stream as possible. Now, of course, this aroused suspicions with the guards. Why would Raymond want to go so far close to the stream? As they went to question Raymond, Palmer walked up to one of the guards and fired the 45 straight into the guy's gut, point blank. The guard dropped his shotgun and fell from his horse. Raymond fired at the other guard, clipping him in the hip. The two men fled, two other prisoners followed, Henry Methven and J.B. French. They arrived at the car, Clyde did not expect the extra passengers. French kept on running, but the others wanted a ride. They piled into the car like drunks gone for a Macca's run. Two of them squished themselves into the boot. And they drove. The group drove to West Dallas where a fresh set of civilian clothes were awaiting them. Time magazine noted the, quote, convicts left behind spotted handiwork of Clyde Barrow, notorious outlaw at large. Of course, they became top priority for Texas Governor Ma Ferguson. Lee Simmons, who had a chip on his shoulder about Clyde, was put in charge of organizing the capture. Simmons knew the perfect person, a Texas Ranger who was as deadly as he was famous, Frank Hamer. Now, we will be going over Frank Hamer in a future episode, but for now, just know that he had a reputation for hunting outlaws. Hamer was initially reluctant to pursue the outlaws. Who knows why he eventually accepted, but he did. He began his investigation in Dallas, careful to avoid West Dallas specifically, as to not tip off Clyde that he was being hunted by Hamer. Now, Hamer was far from the first to create profiles of criminals in an effort to get into their mind and catch them, but, I mean, it was the 30s, it was severely lacking. It was still rare to find someone who sort of worked like that. He would quiz the sheriff in Dallas as to the particulars of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. You know, what kind of 
clothes did they wear? Specifically, style. What brand of cigarettes did they smoke? Yeah, that sort of thing. He tripped into other towns with law enforcement that had run-ins with the Barrow Gang, finding the stores that Clyde had purchased equipment from. In Joplin, he visited the chief of detectives, Ed Portley. Portley was happy to provide all the details that Hamer wanted. Filling the Texas Ranger in on the April 13th shootout the previous year. While law enforcement in the towns knew exactly who he was and what he was doing, he was careful not to have words spread outside of the police. As far as the general public was concerned, he wasn't anyone doing anything. As he traveled from town to town, he emulated Clyde's reported driving habits, camping out a sight on the highways and the edges of town. It wasn't long before he figured he had a pattern. So from even the early days, formulating a plan to catch them, Hamer knew that Clyde Barrows was not going to be taken alive. Now it was clear, even when presented with a seemingly hopeless situation, Clyde would fight to the last breath, trying to escape rather than surrender quietly. While Hamer wanted to avoid a shootout, he really didn't care about preserving Clyde's life. The thing he was more worried about was Bonnie. You see, he was old-fashioned. He didn't like the idea of killing a woman. He would reconcile himself with the fact that uh, he would remind himself Bonnie would not allow herself to be separated from Clyde and seemed as willing as him to go down dying and fighting rather than surrendering. So, the ideal plan for Hamer would be to find a long-term camp of theirs, sneak up while they are asleep, and, quote, tap each one on the head, kick their weapons out of reach, handcuff them before they knew what it was all about. Frank Hamer received a call from Henderson Jordan, who wanted him to get in touch with a man willing to help them set a trap for Bonnie and Clyde, a 49-year-old man named Ivy Medvin. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. It was 1pm on January 23rd. Raymond and Bybee were robbing a bank. They went in to change a $20 note, and when the cashier opened the register, they pulled their guns. Their take was $3,800. Raymond and Bybee got away. Clyde was their driver. For the first time in what seems like a long time, the Barrow gang had successfully pulled off a job. Bonnie was apparently left nearby, and this caused an issue as Clyde wanted the money to be split six ways, with Bonnie and Palmer receiving full shares. Raymond strongly disagreed, on the account that they didn't do jack shit to help with the robbery. Besides, he owed James Mullen $1,000 for helping in the prison escape, and if they divided the money four ways instead of six, he was pretty much covered on that debt. Bybee had no real opinion on the matter. He took his money and bounced, leaving the gang for good. He would be returned to prison a week later. January 26th, they hit another bank. Raymond Palmer and Henry got them their hands on $1,500. Again, Clyde was the getaway driver. Their pockets now lined with green they made for Texas. On the way, Raymond and Palmer started yelling at each other. Raymond thought that he was a lazy leech, and Palmer called Raymond, quote, a punk blabbermouth braggart, and accused him of being a prison snitch. Later on the ride, when Palmer was asleep in the car, Raymond drew his pistol and aimed it at him. Clyde slapped Raymond and ordered him to put the gun away. Palmer found out what happened and, quite understandably, soon left the gang. February 1st, the Barrow gang was down to Bonnie, Clyde, Raymond, and Henry Medvin. They robbed another bank. This one didn't go quite as well as the others. Uh, their take was only about $272, and they were shot at, like a lot. Their bad luck continued a week and a half later when they were spotted stealing a car and entered into a pursuit with local cops, ex exchanging some gunfire. The night of February 13th, Bonnie and Clyde were visiting their family in West Dallas with Henry. Raymond was dropped off at Amarillo on the trip there. They met their family five days later, this time with Raymond in tow, along with his new missus, Mary O'Dare. 
If the O'Dare name is familiar, that's because she was the wife of Jean O'Dare, Raymond's old partner. Mary immediately began complaining about virtually everything. She wanted to go to clubs. She wanted expensive restaurants. She was difficult. Bonnie and Clyde refused to humour her, and Raymond took her side. In what seems like a moment of restraint, Clyde didn't blow up at them and tell them to leave. The bank robberies were actually a lot smoother and had a higher success rate when Raymond was involved. If, here's the thing, like, if Clyde had just swallowed more of his pride earlier on, the Barrow gang could have actually been quite successful. He was clearly a good getaway driver and had a knack for slipping out of tight spots, but wasn't too crash hot when it came to the robberies themselves. If he had some more muscle and a really good planner, dude really could have gone far. During his visit to the family, Clyde gave Bonnie a chance to get out while she could. He wrote a letter swearing she took no active part in any murder or robbery. Bonnie immediately rejected the idea. February 20th, they restocked their guns and ammo before robbing another store later. $4,176 they got away with. A customer, cashing in his check, handed Clyde his $27 work packet. Clyde stuffed the money back into the customer's pocket and told him that he didn't want his money, just the banks. A true Robin Hood. Now, tensions would rise again when they would talk about splitting the money. Clyde would divide the money equally for everyone except for Mary. You see, Mary was not getting a share, according to him. She didn't do anything. Raymond replied that Bonnie didn't do anything. Raymond pretended to comply, but really snuck some bills into his pocket. Clyde saw him. Later on down the road, he stopped the car and ordered Raymond out. In his pockets, 600 bucks. Now, Clyde didn't immediately kick them out, but they were not in good standing with him. The death blow would come later, when Mary tried to convince Bonnie to poison Clyde, take his money, and split with Raymond and her. Bonnie told Clyde, and Clyde gave Raymond an ultimatum. The gang, or Mary. That's how it came to be. March 6th, Raymond and Mary were driving back to Texas alone. March 12th, a bank in Kansas was taken for $25,000. Police attributed this to the Barrow gang, and really, they would have picked up on this straight away that it wasn't them. It was far too clean of a job, and the take was far too much to be Clyde Barrow's handiwork. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Let's talk about Henry Medvin for a second. He was Ivy's third son. The reason for Henry's stay in Eastern Farm was a couple of years earlier, after he left home to try and make some money. He was meant to serve 10 years for the murder of a man who Henry claimed had made some advances on him while he was hitchhiking in West Texas. According to him, a man picked him up and made a pass at Henry, who retaliated like a, you know, rational person, I'm sure, pulling a knife and slashing at the man's throat, dumping the body off to the side of the road and taking the car. Now, as far as the police were concerned, Henry had murdered a man who had been kind enough to stop for him and offer him a ride. This is undeniable facts. Henry's family stuck by him, swearing that his version of the story was correct. Ivy had seen the Barrow gang in February and again in March. After the March visit, John Joyner got Ivy in contact with Sheriff Jordan. He reported to the sheriff on the March visit. Henry was able to talk to them in private and told them that he was prepared to betray Bonnie and Clyde in exchange for his own freedom. Frank Hamer wasn't the only one to notice the path Bonnie and Clyde were heading was destruction, and Henry, Henry would rather not die. In exchange for the family's help, Ivy wanted a full pardon for any and every crime Henry had committed to date. Jordan would relay these details to Lester Kindle, a special agent who headed the Division of Investigation in New Orleans. Kindle was keen to set up a trap, as J. Edgar Hoover had made the criminals a top priority. 
But there was a little bit of a problem. You see, Hoover and Kendall, while they were special agents on the federal level, they didn't have the power to grant a pardon. Henry's conviction was handled at a state level. Someone from the Texas state government would have to sign off on the pardon. Q. Lee Simmons, along with Governor Ma Ferguson, signing an agreement that they would give to Frank Hamer. The next time Bonnie and Clyde were in town, Ivy was to contact Jordan and tell him when and where they would be found. Upon successful capture, Henry would be presented with his pardon for assault with attempted murder. The pardon was very specific and would go on to royally fuck his life up in April when he killed a state trooper. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. It was April 1st, Easter Sunday. One of the few instances of premeditated murder Clyde would participate in. Joe Palmer had a bone to pick with the building tender during his time at Eastham Farm, Wade McNabb. McNabb was out of prison on a 60-day pass. How nice for him. He would disappear March 29th from a small East Texas town. Palmer and Clyde had tracked McNabb down and had abducted him. April 2nd, Houston Press received an anonymous letter which detailed the abuse prisoners were subjected to at Eastern Farm and included a crude map of where, quote, one of Lee Simmons's chief rats could be found. The sheriff went to take a look. There they found McNabb's body. Clyde or Palmer had crushed his skull with a heavy blow in addition to shooting him several times. Bonnie Clyde and Henry drove Joe Palmer to the town of Grapevine where Clyde requested Palmer hitch back to West Dallas and make contact with their families. Clyde was going to host a small Easter party for them out here in Grapevine. They were still close to Dallas, but Clyde was sure that the state troopers weren't actually looking for him. Over the wireless, he had heard Raymond and Mary had pulled several successful bank jobs, and the police were on high alert for them. Clyde took a nap as he waited for his family, his Browning automatic rifle sitting nearby. It was 3.30 in the afternoon. Three motorcycle officers from the Texas State Highway Patrol rode along Highway 114, just north of Grapevine. Officer Polk Ivy was ahead. E.B. Wheeler was behind him, and rookie H.D. Murphy at the very end. Wheeler spotted an expensive car a little out of the way of the highway. He gestured for Murphy to follow as he peeled off to a nearby road to check it out. It was a routine check. Why would Wheeler take his shotgun? He left it strapped to the motorcycle. Murphy's shotgun was also in the holster. It wasn't even loaded. Clyde sat up to see the approaching men and reached for his shotgun. Clyde's intentions were to kidnap the officer's driving them far off before dropping them in the middle of nowhere. Typical Clyde Barrow stuff. But that's not what Henry Medvin interpreted Clyde's next work words as. Clyde said to Henry, let's take them. Wheeler began to dismount his bike, and so Henry took them. He raised his BAR and squeezed the trigger, hot lead hitting the officer's chest, killing him instantly. Murphy rummaged through his pockets to get the shells, but Clyde, realizing that blood had been shed, fired his shotgun, knocking the rookie off of his motorcycle. Henry Methvin went over to where Murphy lay wounded and fired several more shots into his body, ensuring he was dead. Polk Ivy doubled back as soon as he realized Wheeler and Murphy were no longer riding behind him. Articles that quoted a nearby farmer ran the story that a man and woman killed two cops while a third watched. The woman shot one of the downed officers and shot him repeatedly while his, quote, head bounced on the road like a rubber ball. While this story is certainly incorrect, Lone Peels on the site near an empty bottle of whiskey is evidence that Bonnie was with them. Clyde drove out of there. 
Not far outside of Grapevine, Clyde recognized the car coming the opposite direction. He waved his younger brother, LC, to stop and told them, you've got to scatter. Henry had just killed two cops back there. They then hightailed it to Oklahoma, leaving Joe Palmer to fend for himself in West Dallas. When newspapers got their hands on it, they reported the murders, and their focus was on Murphy. For the press, it was a chance to put Bonnie and Clyde clearly in the villain role. You see, H.D. Murphy was on his first day of the job. Not only that, he was a fortnight from marrying Marie Tullis. Marie wore her wedding gown to his funeral. Reported as fact, the shots fired from Bonnie Parker's gun had taken the young couple's future together. To the public, Bonnie Parker was no longer a silly girl swept up in the thrill of a job. She was now a vicious killer, just like Clyde Barrow. Even if Bonnie were to surrender, there was no chance of a light conviction. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. And so the bounty on Bonnie and Clyde jumped up another thousand dollars and called for the dead bodies of the grapevine slayers. Ma Ferguson added an additional 500 bucks for each of the killers. For the first time since they began, Bonnie now had a price on her head. The heat began to turn up under the governor. As people clamoured for justice, Ma Ferguson in turn trickled the heat down. Hamer felt it and he knew he had to change his strategy. While he was previously travelling alone, he now formed a posse composed of Manny Galt, a former Texas Ranger, now Highway Patrol, Alcorn, and Ted Hinton. This four-man team travelled in two cars, Hamer and Galt in one, and Alcorn and Hinton in the other. On April 3rd, the team drove to Oklahoma. Hamer believed Clyde's usual pattern was to flee north after committing a crime. Descriptions given to them by service station attendants proved that he was right, and on the 4th, they pulled into the town of Durant, Along the main street, driving the opposite direction, Alcorn shouted to Hinton. He saw Clyde Barrow. Heavy traffic prevented the U-turn. They could have gotten out and fired from the car, but Sheriff Smoot Schmid had forbidden them from shooting in a populated area. Clyde kept on driving at his steady pace. By the time that they drove around the block, Bonnie and Clyde were gone. They followed the rumours from April 5th that the Barrow gang had been spotted in the town of Texarkana. According to a witness, Bonnie Parker ordered a sandwich and sat down to eat it. A car pulled up and there were two men waiting for her. After a moment, one of the men walked in and escorted her out before she could finish eating. Call bullshit on this one, Bonnie was crippled and found it difficult to move around on that leg and it was very much noticeable. She limped. Hamer and the posse were already on their way to investigate. Bonnie and Clyde were actually pulling into a town two hours away called Commerce around midnight Friday, April 6th, where they slept in the car, intending to head out the moment day broke. The following morning, Commerce Chief of Police Percy Boyd and Constable Cal Campbell checked in on a Ford sedan reported along the highway with a few people sleeping in it. They figured... It was just some heavy drinking miners partied a little too hard and just needed to sleep it off. Nothing too unusual around that area. They had their pistols holstered on their hips as they exited the car to walk over the muddy field. It was Clyde's turn to keep watch while the others slept. Before the policemen were out of the car, he was starting the engine and throwing the car into reverse, backing towards the road. He was a little too quick on driving forward and the mud on the shoulder was too much for the car, and it just sank to its rims. Campbell and Boyd, probably a little bit bemused by the situation, walked towards the stuck Ford. Campbell acted first, swearing later that he saw one of the occupants flash a gun. Campbell unholstered his pistol and fired at the car. Boyd, the more experienced with firefights, raised his own pistol when Clyde and Henry stepped out of the car, both holding BARs in their hands. 
Now, this this is the scene that I could totally see in a movie. You know, low angle as they step out, hold the guns up, pulling the triggers, firing in slow motion. It would be the clip that they used in the trailer. A bullet ripped through Campbell's heart, dropping him dead. Boyd took a slug to the left of the head. It was a flesh wound, though, that merely stunned him, and he was able to get to his feet as Clyde and Henry dragged him into the car. Gorkas from nearby farmhouses lined the property line. Clyde raised his rifle and announced to them that one man was already dead. If they didn't follow his orders, he'd kill another. He then told them to push the car out of the mud. Everyone was pushing. Bonnie was behind the wheel. Boyd, bleeding from the head, even got out and helped push. If a driver stopped to look at the commotion, hey, they're part of it now too. Clyde would point his rifle at them and get them to join the recovery group. Finally, a man named Charlie Dobson pulled up in a truck. With a length of the chain, he managed to get the car free. With Percy Boyd back in the car, Clyde raced off. Not far from the site of Campbell's death, Clyde ran into a roadblock in the form of two farmers who were in the same predicament that he had been in minutes earlier. Telling the farmers that two men had just been killed and they were in a hurry, the farmers pointed at the mud. Kind of just said, tell the mud that. They were stuck. They wouldn't be there if they could get their cars out. Clyde and Henry were out of their cars, helping move the stuck farmers. As they did this, Bonnie gave Boyd some medical attention. She'd picked up a thing or two about patching up grazers over the past couple of years. The next town over, they found a fresh shirt for Boyd, one that didn't have blood all over it. They also added a tie to his ensemble and gave him Henry's suit jacket. He was released later that night on the edge of Fort Scott in Kansas. A good six-hour drive nowadays from Commerce. Before departing, Boyd asked them if there was anything that they wanted to tell him to tell the press. Since he'd grown quite fond of the gang during his road trip, Bonnie was the only one to request something. She wanted her image to be cleaned up a little bit. She asked Boyd to tell the press that she did not smoke cigars. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief. To the law, a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Police still believe that Raymond Hamilton was part of the Barrow Gang, being the third member reported with them. So he was linked to Murphy, Wheeler, and Campbell's murders. He didn't like this, so he sat down and wrote a letter to his lawyer, which reads, quote, Dear Mr. Basket, I am sending you a bill from a hotel I was staying at the time of that killing in Commerce, Oklahoma. I haven't been with Clyde Barrow since the Lancaster bank robbery. I am sending you $100 and I want this put before the public and proved right away. I want you to let the public and the whole world know that I am not with Clyde Barrow and don't go his speed. I am a lone man and intended to stay that way. I was in Houston Wednesday night, April 4th, and have been here, New Orleans, since then, even April 5th. Clyde got his hands a little dirty too, writing a letter or two himself that month, basically threatening editors to clean up their writing when talking about Bonnie. She was not a cigar-smoking, salacious woman, and asked them not to speculate on the couple's sex life, otherwise he would, quote, end such men as you mighty quickly. He apparently also wrote to Henry Ford next, writing, quote, Dear Sir, while I still have got breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skinned. And even if my business hasn't been strictly legal... It doesn't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8. <laughs> now, there's evidence that this is not an authentic letter. I'm inclined to believe them here, since the letter would work ultimately as a free advertising if it were published as part of a news 
story, particularly the part, quote, for sustained speed and freedom from trouble. It sounds like something board members would come up for an old commercial or something like that. Needless to say, it's an interesting little story. And with that, the Barrow Gang was back on the road. April 16th, the first national bank in a town in West Iowa was robbed for 1500 bucks. Good for Clyde? A successful robbery without Raymond. They took the money back to their families and continued to skirt West Dallas and visit their families over the course of the next few weeks. Frank Hamer was out in the open at this point about his hunt for Bonnie and Clyde, but Clyde wasn't especially worried. He had to talk to his family about his new plans to purchase a plot of land in Louisiana and move the family there. How nice of him. The Barrow gang made at least one trip to Louisiana itself for Henry to see his family. Ivy Methven was able to inform Henry of the deal he had made. By late April, the Barrow gang picked up Joe Palmer once again. Palmer had no feelings for them ditching him. He'd been in and out of the gang since he'd first joined. And that's a thing about a lot of public enemies of the time. Most of them would do jobs with whoever. None of them particularly had a solid crew outside of maybe one or two trusted men. Nevertheless, news of another previous member being picked up by the police brought a smile to their faces. Raymond Hamilton broke again from Mary's extravagant lifestyle, surrendered to police after they caught him in a roadblock. Clyde took the chance to gloat, writing Raymond a letter which read, I am very sorry to hear of your getting captured, but due to the fact that you offered no resistance, sympathy is lacking. The most I can do is hope that you missed the chair. The purpose of this letter is to remind you of all the dirty deals you have pulled. When I came to the farm after you, I thought maybe the joint had changed you from a boastful punk. However, I learned too soon the mistake I made. Clyde continues on, referencing Raymond's threat to Palmer back in January, and called Mary Raymond's quotes, prostitute sweetheart. They sent the letter from Memphis, Tennessee, when Clyde, Bonnie, Henry, and Palmer made $700 off a bank, though the press reported the number as high as $2,000. Back home, Sheriff Schmid was finally getting a tap on the Barrow's family phone. This ended up to be largely a pointless endeavor since they all assumed that they were already being listened to and spoken code. All the traffic that went through their lines was mundane information that wasn't going to help them catch Clyde. It just goes to show the strange way Schmid went about his investigation. He had the power to tap the phones long ago, as in like way back when Clyde uh, met up with Bonnie. But they just, for whatever reason, they didn't. They may have even picked up on some of the code names, funny enough, when, quote, Mr. Howard visited the Barrow Gang. Nearby towns and banks were done over by the Barrow Gang. Hamer and his posse towards the end of April, they tracked Bonnie and Clyde through the backcountry of Minnesota to Texas, Oklahoma to Illinois, catching glimpses of them before they inevitably outsped them. While the other members of the posse were getting frustrated, this time allowed Hamer to develop a new plan. The last few months had shown a, const a new constant with Bonnie and Clyde. When they were at West Dallas, they would take a day or two to visit Henry's family in Louisiana. Bineville Parish was a small town, but to avoid any unnecessary attention, Clyde would take the back narrow roads to meet with the Methvins. These narrow back roads had thick brush that lined both sides. Now that got Hamer thinking. If getting the drop on Bonnie and Clyde while they were sleeping wasn't possible, maybe, just maybe, an ambush would be. Sheriff Jordan agreed to cooperate exclusively with Hamer and his posse on this, though he was not a man of his word. Whether Ivy or Joyner tipped Jordan off, Jordan was expected to contact Hamer. He would, but he would also call Special Agent Kindle with the Division of Investigation Unit at Chicago. 
The sting got off to a false start on April 13, when the Barrow gang called off the visit last minute. Probably a good thing, since they didn't really have any plan, apart from, oh, we'll get there and we'll figure it out as we go. Hamer and Jordan began fleshing out the details at the end of April. Hamer expected Ivy Methvin to be involved. He couldn't expect an easy ride out. There, there they are. Goodbye, thanks for the pardon. Ivy did not like that. He did not like the idea of sitting in the middle of a shootout, for he believed that Clyde would kill everyone and anything near him if he thought he was going down. Jordan dangled the pardon in front of him and told him, do it. Hamer's plan involved heavy artillery. He contacted Weldon Dowers, commander of the Texas National Guard unit stationed in Dallas. All he wanted was two BARs. Dowers was not willing to give him access at first because they were for civilian use only. You're not a civilian. It was only because a congressman put pressure on him that he relented and gave Hamer his pair of guns. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. May 6th, after knocking off a bank in Iowa on the 3rd, the gang were back home. Palmer had headed north prior to the bank job, and Henry wasn't with them. His whereabouts during this time aren't known. Bonnie had a moment alone with her mother, Emma. She told Emma that when she died, she wanted to be brought home rather than a funeral parlour. She wanted to be surrounded by her family. A long, cool, peaceful night together before I leave you. Bonnie was sure she was at the end of her line. Before they left, Bonnie gave Emma a copy of the poem that she had written called End of the Line. Part of this poem, dubbed by the papers as The Story of Bonnie and Clyde, has been used in this series as Story Breaks, as read by Faye Dunaway in the 1967 film. That same night, Clyde had a word with his father, Henry. Clyde produced some papers and told Henry that he wanted him to sign these. Clyde didn't tell Henry what these papers were, and Henry was illiterate, so we'll never know for sure what those papers pertain. The best guess is that it was a will of some fashion, leaving the family land or money that couldn't be linked to the bank robberies. Clyde's pen was empty on ink. He stuffed the papers back into the briefcase and told his father, don't worry about it. We'll sign them next time I'm in town. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. A deal made by Clyde and O.D. Stevens presented the gang with the means to, ta to make money not linked to robberies. Stevens was being held at the farm and wanted out. In exchange for busting out, Stevens was offering $6,000 each to bust him out and two others. This was more than enough money for the land that Bonnie and Clyde were looking at. Stevens made the deal mid-April with bankroll and more than several weeks to plan Clyde made about planning. He tried contacting pretty boy Floyd, even arriving at the door of his safe house in Oklahoma. He never got the chance to talk to him. Even if he did, Pretty Boy Floyd surely wouldn't have worked with someone he hated so much. The second and third weeks of May, Clyde, Bonnie, and Henry stayed in Bineville Parish. Hamer didn't move on them at this point. He had to wait for a moment when there weren't any civilians around, and it were impossible for them to escape. So Bonnie and Clyde relaxed during their stays there and got along well with the extended Medvin family. When they were out, they took Henry with them. This would present a problem in Ivy's eyes. You see, Henry would be caught in the crossfire, or worse, shot by Clyde intentionally. Bonnie and Clyde would continue their trend of camping, no one knowing exactly where they would stop for the night, making Hamer sure that their ambush plan was the best course of action. Bonnie and Clyde did have themselves a semi-permanent place that no one outside of those two knew where it was. When they stayed out in Louisiana town of Mangum, they left Henry at home, so Ivy had no idea about it. 
May 19th, Hamer got fed up with waiting for Ivy and Jordan to tell them the ambush spot, so he picked up his posse and headed to Louisiana himself to set the trap. The following night, Bonnie and Clyde were there with Henry, visiting Ivy and Ada. Henry got his parents alone and told them that Clyde was planning on driving to Shreveport the next day, and while they were there, Henry would try and get away. See, Henry had this little, simple little arrangement worked out with Clyde. If they were ever separated, and then they both split, they were to meet at the designated spot. The spot was Ivy's farm. Sure as it was in Shreveport, a police car slowed down as they went past the diner Clyde was ordering lunch at. Henry was inside picking the food up, and he saw Clyde throw the V8 into gear and blast it off. Clyde circled around the block to pick up Henry, but the kid, he'd already booked it. Henry had seen his chance and taken it. He ran from the cafe, stole a car, and drove it out to his cousin's place. Hamer and his posse went over to Shreveport to check out the news of Clyde Barrow and learnt from the cafe waitress that Henry had fled on foot while the car squealed away. With Henry confirmed to be separated, Hamer called back to meet Jordan. May 22nd was going to be the ambush date if all went correctly. Once again, Jordan tried jerking the Hamer posse around, telling them to wait in the hotel while he talked to Ivy to get more information. Of course, he didn't need to talk to Ivy. He wanted to bag himself some credit with the FBI and tried to contact Agent Kindle. Agent Kindle was not available. Bonnie and Clyde made contact with Henry via Medvin relatives on May 21st, a Monday. They would pick him up the following day, sometime in the afternoon. Ivy told Jordan when Clyde had planned, and Jordan, unable to call Kindle, told Ivy that they weren't ready. He would have to postpone the setup for Wednesday. Hopefully, give him enough time for Kindle to be called, and for the feds to sweep in and handle the capture of the deaths of Bonnie and Clyde. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Lewis and Robert Bronson were out hunting in the woods the morning of May 22nd, just outside of Mangum. Robert, chasing his dog, ran into a ford that was home to Bonnie and Clyde. He could see the guns and ammunition piled in the back seats, as well as stacks of banknotes. Clyde asked Robert his name, then asked if he knew any bank robbers. Robert knew John Dillinger, as well as Pretty Boy Floyd. Clyde introduced himself and Bonnie. Bonnie invited Robert to sit with her, and told Clyde to get a picture of them together. After the photo, Bonnie took the photo of Robert by himself. Clyde found a paper of their exploits and handed it to Robert, pointing out that Bonnie and Clyde on the headline, that that was them. Clyde told Robert how they were waiting to pick up Henry, and then joked that if he wanted to, I mean, they, they could leave Henry and Robert could join them. Robert didn't take up the offer. Lewis started calling for the boy, and Robert told his host that he had to leave. Clyde asked if his family was in bad shape, if they needed money. Robert replied that they had fallen on hard times. Clyde then offered him some money. That is to say, as much as Robert wanted. Robert turned the money down. Bonnie asked for his address, writing it down and promising to send him copies of the photos that they had taken once she had them developed. Clyde, still wanting to give the kid something, gave Robert a new shotgun. Or tried to. Like the money, Robert politely declined, then disappeared into the scrub. Bonnie and Clyde then drove through the back country that afternoon to pick up Henry. This road in particular was narrow and curvy, so people usually took their time on it. One spot was a long straight up a hill, then back down. At the crest of the hill, the sides were obscured by trees and bush. And someone from up top could see a quarter mile each side to warn others of upcoming cars. Bonnie and Clyde passed through just fine. Hamer and his posse were still in the hotel, awaiting Jordan's call. When Bonnie and Clyde arrived at the Medvins, Ivy told them that Henry wasn't there. He'd be there following day, come back at 9am. He'd tell Henry to be ready then. So... They left, to be back the following morning. 
Ivy immediately called Jordan and told them, 9am tomorrow morning, be there. Jordan tried Kendall one last time before giving up. He then called Hamer. Hamer and the posse set themselves up on the road south of Mount Lebanon. While setting up the ambush, they realized it could be difficult to hit a car speeding 60-odd miles an hour. If Clyde slowed or even stopped, that would assure them a successful end of Bonnie and Clyde. But how to make them stop? They would smell a setup a mile away if it was just some random roadblock on the road. If only they had someone who Clyde trusted, who could they make slow down and stop? Ivy was soon getting his truck so that they could feign car troubles. It was two in the morning. Alcorn and Hinton had BARs. Jordan had his Winchester lever rifle, a light caliber but accurate gun. Galt had a Remington Model 8, as did Oakley. The Remingtons were meant for big game hunting. If everything went south, Hamer was prepared to step out onto the road and prevent Clyde's escape. So, his arsenal was a Remington Model 11 shotgun, a particularly high-powered shotgun, and a BAR called the Colt Monitor Machine Rifle, a kill shot weapon powerful enough to shoot through bone and metal. Everyone had themselves a sidearm, and Hinton had a camera to record the aftermath. Technically, even though they were all involved with stopping Bonnie and Clyde, only Jordan and Oakley had the authority to arrest or shoot them down. In waiting, the duo, Jordan deputized Hamer, Galt, Alcorn, and Hinton on the hilltop, giving them the same power. Around sunrise, Ivy joined them at the hill. He moved his truck into position and popped the bonnet. He also jacked the car up and pulled off a tire. With the car in place, it would be difficult for anyone to blast through without at least slowing down to avoid. Ivy was then told that he had to be di- had to be down by the vehicle to get Clyde's attention. Ivy was not happy with that. He would be way too close to the gunfire for his liking. Jordan threatened to kill him himself. A couple of cars did pull over, and Ivy told them, no, no, there wasn't any problem. I'm just about to get the spare on, don't worry about it. At 9.15 in the morning, a car approached. It was a Ford V8. The posse could clearly see Clyde driving, and Bonnie was sitting next to him. They pulled over to the familiar face. Hamer planned on standing and shouting to surrender Bonnie and Clyde. He didn't get the chance, though. Oakley stood instead. He offered no option of surrender. He aimed his Remington and pulled the trigger. Entering Clyde's left temple, the right side of his head was expelled into the car. Clyde died instantly. His foot slipped off the clutch and the Ford rolled forward. None of the posse could see Oakley, but they had heard the shots. And they saw the car rolling forward. The rest of the men jumped to their feet, clearly in action mode, and fired. Bonnie had just enough time to realize that Clyde was dead and to let out a scream before her body was riddled with bullets. So many bullets hit her body, no one was sure who fired the killing shot, nor which one was actually fatal. Hinton later wrote that he and his partners fired about, quote, 150 shots. They kept firing at the car as it rolled into the ditch. Taking no chances, Hamer took his machine gun and fired a burst into Bonnie through the rear passenger window. It took just 16 seconds from the first shot fired from Oakley to the last being Hamer. Unlike the blaze of glory that they hoped to go down as, Bonnie and Clyde had died without firing a single shot back. Bonnie's headstone reads, As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. Clyde's reads, gone, but not forgotten. And that concludes our three-parter on the story of Bonnie and Clyde. A little bit longer than my typical ones, but I feel like it was justified. There was a lot that these guys did, and a lot that a lot of people don't realize. It's been really fun researching 
this particular topic. Before I thank the listeners for listening, I would like to announce that the podcast now has a website, sectsandmurder.com, S-E-C-T-S-A-N-D-M-U-R-D-E-R.com. Link in the show notes. Check it out. At the moment, it's just really an about page, but I'm planning on putting a little bit more there. Um, Hopefully, little bits of info that I've taken that don't quite fit into the script, but are still interesting nonetheless. We'll see. It's developing. Thank you guys for listening.